After all this, you still... I still want that gas, yes. And you had better deliver. I'll tell you one thing, though. Watching this movie when, like, the Taylor Swift concert and, like, Five Nights at Freddy's is out... Like, you see the meme where, like, the scene's going on and you have the audio from both, like, things going on at the same time. No joke. I haven't I was... seen that, no. Okay, because I was literally in, like, when I went to see it, the theater next to us was, like, doing the Taylor Swift tour or whatever. And, like, in all, like, these dramatic and poignant scenes, I just hear, like, pop music, like, vaguely through the wall. I'm just like, what is what is going on here? Yeah. Then I realized what was going on. But I, I mean, it didn't take me out of the immersion too much, but I was just like, what? What? You know, yeah, there was not now that you mention it, I do recall when I saw this, there was like a lot of just ambient sound from like, you know, just like like what sounded like thunder and stuff like that. And sometimes that was the movie, but it was just like you could hear like, you know, just kind of like a lot of noise coming, like just like the shaking of the walls and stuff like that. Right, right. Yeah, because I, I think it's like, what, it's this movie, they've got the Taylor Swift Eras tour, and then, like, I think all the other blockbusters have kind of cleared at this point, right? Um. And this one's even been out for, like, a week and a half at this point. Yeah, this has been out for a week and a half. Um, I don't, I'm trying to think what's coming. Uh, this weekend, I believe, is the, is, uh. Or not this weekend, but next weekend is the Marvels, so it's going to have to compete with Scorsese's favorite. <laughs> and we're already seeing how that beef is playing out. Oh boy! I will say this Thanksgiving, I'm putting the turkey down. I will be in theaters watching Napoleon. Yes, I'm really looking forward to that one. Uh, in full well. French army regalia, I will be. <laughs> Just get the full cosplay out. The full cost. <laughs> you gotta make sure you have the hat. Preferably, oh, yeah. you're I... sitting in the back of the theater at that point. But you know, maybe in true French style, you sit up front and get in as many people's way as possible. I, I don't know, because like that's how you get like the. I just I don't understand how like we're at this the apex of of human technology and we still haven't figured out how to make screens look normal that close up front. Yeah, I think it's kind of like a sort of laziness when it comes to like the development of certain things. We're just like, yeah, it's good enough. We don't need to necessarily uh, you know, try the rest of that stuff. Yeah, they, you know, they, they say capitalism fosters innovation. Well, guess what? I, I haven't seen any innovation on this front. <laughs> the market's been free for a minute. <laughs> That's true. Oh, boy. Welcome back to the greenhouse, uh, dear listeners. It's me and Josh for our movie magic segment. Um, I've been very excited to cover this one. We will be getting into uh, Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. As always, content warning. Um, you know, in, in true cinema fashion, I have a very pretentious uh, set of opening remarks I wrote for this. Before I get into this, is there anything you wanted to open with? Uh, no, but I mean, I was going to say pretentious, uh, like openings and whatnot is, I mean, it's kind of the theme of the movie itself. So it makes sense that this is how we choose to open. <laughs> All right. Well, well, we're returning to the greenhouse in strange conditions as usual. 
The world remains mired in conflict abroad as well as domestically. The world grows hotter, the corrupt become more emboldened, and the U.S. empire is now more brittle. The waning age of the alleged American empire is not one that inspires a more hopeful or peaceful future, but one that inspires fear, uncertainty, and unfortunately, violence. This current age, in the accidentally wise words of Vice President Kamala Harris, exists in the context of all that it is and all that came before. We vaguely explored this idea in past episodes that when it is difficult or impossible to demand or deliver justice, it is incumbent on us to examine the ledger of history and bring to light the record of past injustice and explain to the world how and why these past injustices are tied to, if not the justification for today's injustices. This may not have been the pure interest or drive behind the work we're discussing today, but this remains one great property of art and cinema that must be understood and channeled. Today, we'll be discussing Martin Scorsese's recent film, which I personally consider to be a brilliant movie, Killers of the Flower Moon. So, first impressions. What did you think of the film? Um, so I thought it was pretty good. I think the one thing that kind of stands out and like not to like just be like kind of, you know, the, the basic bitch uh, complaint, but it is very long and I yeah. don't necessarily think it needed to be. I think it's sort of the movie is sort of like and not that I'm like, you know, you need to pick a lane or genre and stick with it. But the movie sort of veers in and out of multiple genres. There's sort of like this murder mystery thing. And then there's like a movie about you know, we know the mystery solved like halfway through, like we know who's doing it and then we kind of delve into it. But then like we have to get confirmations later about things. There's the courtroom drama stuff. There's a lot going on and I don't think it was all essential to telling this particular story. Um, Especially when like the story itself is kind of like, I mean, this is uh, about uh, a relatively, um, you know, interesting uh historical phenomenon with the uh osage uh murders um in this era and this is just focusing on like a handful of them and uh there was a lot more than just the handful that we we see in this movie uh this there was like a big like uh, endemic of this uh happening at the time uh beyond just what we saw with like you know the um I was the Burkharts and the uh, you know King Hill and whatnot. So this is, I, I I appreciated it. I I just think that it was a little long. The uh, you probably have some thoughts about the way it ends with the like uh, mystery science theater type uh, you know <laughs> uh, ending where it's like you know this um, what's the exact term for? It? But the the, way, the ending for that too. It, I don't know if that was an essential way to end it. Um, maybe there's some uh, stylistic. Um, thing for it and i and i think that i i think i get the stylistic reason for it and i think it it helps deliver a different message but it did feel like it was uh, a little overly long and a few things like that kind of held it back from like being a true instant classic but i still think it was a very good movie yeah i think i did notice that like there were shifting perspectives and i i guess because i enjoyed it I didn't consider that it could be disorienting for some viewers. So it's it's good you mentioned that. There are like clear perspective shifts, especially like 
certain scenes in the movie or certain points in the film where you can tell like this is one character's perspective of events versus another's and like those it's a lot more obvious than it is in some other films and like i i personally like the effect but i guess i i didn't even consider like how that could be disorienting for some viewers and then with regards to the length like that's that's a point we discussed in oppenheimer too right where like we've (laughs) this year is unique in that like one blockbuster has already been willing to stretch the duration of mm-hmm. what we commonly consider acceptable in like modern films, right? And I think like, you know, to me who like grew up with like Bollywood films, right, which are notorious for long like long run times, intermissions okay. are kind of baked into the the film viewing process. You know, like the cultural expectation of going to a film is like there will be a 10 minute or 15 minute intermission. You're going to go, you know, take care of your needs, go get like some more like concessions, come back to the film relaxed, and then, you know, enjoy the rest of your movie, right? And that probably was the case for American films that once upon a time, I don't know what the profit motive or what like the industry reason is for shorter film runtimes, probably to like get more showings. Um, That might be it. That might be it, right? But like, um, like th- this was a new controversy. Controversy about this film, right? Is that? Yeah, I was gonna say you mentioned the trans, the um, intermission thing, and there was actually like a lawsuit involved with this movie about um, some theaters actually including an intermission. Right, and it's like the artistic intent was to watch it all in one sitting, and like that, that is a you know a consideration for a film, right? Like, I, I guess you know for Oppenheimer. Uh, Nolan didn't really say one way or another whether there should or shouldn't have been an intermission. And I didn't even consider, like, does an intermission affect your viewing experience? I don't know. Uh, I'm not that deep into film film Twitter and being that much of a film head that I could decisively say that. But I guess, you know, the intent to watch, a fil- like, a nearly four-hour film in one sitting... Uh, that's a lot to ask for, like, the modern, like, you know, consumer of film who's used to, like, an hour and a half, two hours max. But I think, like, the the artistic intent of having it be four hours and, like, we were able to survive the viewing, right, is, um, I think it's to really, like, wear you down emotionally and put you in the state of mind that some of the characters are in. And if that's the intent, I can see it. And, and uh, I have some thoughts on that and whether or not I thought um, they did it in a good way for like, I, I think, but we'll kind of get into that, right? I think you know, the way certain characters were portrayed, I I, I don't, uh, there might be some problems with it that I, at least I personally have. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cause it's like, you know, Scorsese films tend to run on the longer side anyways. Right. And it's like, yeah. You know, I never heard this intent that, like, oh, you should have watched The Irishman in one sitting. Yeah. You could do it. I took breaks, you know? I, I haven't watched that one yet. My brother just gave it such a like, apocalyptic review that I just didn't want to, like, I never decided to, like, buckle up for it. Because he, he fell asleep, like, partway through, and he's just like, and he got up, he's like, dude, like, this is just so, like, he's like, I wasn't even tired. <laughs> so... Uh, I don't know, but I mean, it, this one is, I, I think it was definitely like, I mean, it was a survivable, uh, experience, of course. Um, I just, I think some concessions could have been made. I think that like, there's, 
you know, I, I, I appreciate like getting like just the director's cut is like the only version of a film that you get. But at the same time, I kind of, you know, there's, there's some considerations that make, um, having a shorter movie be maybe a little bit more desirable in certain cases. Possibly, possibly. Um, so David Grant's book, uh, killers of the flower moon, the Osage murders and the birth of the FBI was the inspiration for the film. I didn't have a chance to read it. What I am I aware of. Yeah. But what I am aware of is like pretty much as soon as the book was published or like right before there was a big bidding war for like the film rights and Scorsese yeah. won that. And I think like definitely after watching this, I can see why someone would be drawn to like wanting those film rights so bad and retelling this story. Um, from what I have heard about the book, I did hear it's like a little bit of like a pro cop kind of vibe. Cause mm-hmm. it is trying to cover like the birth of the FBI, but Again, I haven't read the book, so I'm not going to speculate. I mean, I can maybe see some shades of it in the movie itself, right? I mean, it's like the... I I don't think that, like, pro-cop was, like, the thesis of the movie by any stretch. But I did get get the impression, right, that, like, it it portrays the FBI in probably the most positive light I've seen the FBI portrayed in, like, any movie. Right. uh, Right? Like, they're the ones that are actually able to, like, you know solve these murders and actually help people that had been like, you know, ignored and like the whole system is, was literally rigged against them in every possible fashion. Yeah. And I think like, you know, as a Scorsese head, right? Like his specialty is crime cinema. He's great at trying crime cinema. Right. So there's like a line in the Sopranos. I think about sometimes where it's like his therapist is confronting him about, you know, his criminal activities. Yeah. And he basically responds with, well, what about the robber barons? They were 10 times worse than us. Like, I'm paraphrasing. And then you kind of basically see that writ large in the film where it's like, these posses are like marauding, raunchy, rowdy guys just like, you know, living on this land with impunity and getting up to heinous shit. And it's like, you kind of wonder, like, you know, what's the dividing line between these guys and like the mob who are traditionally Scorsese's, you know, focus in film. Yeah. And you can see some parallels there. You can also see like um you know, I guess like we talk we talk about like uh colonizing the Wild West as this formal activity, right? But in in a practical sense, like it probably was carried out in a pretty criminal fashion through with like, you know, multiple events like this and like also the event mm-hmm. i mean the tulsa race massacre gets brought up um in this yeah. film, right and that was part of like a larger wave of um <laughs> basically racial pogroms against black people in a you know a series called the red summer which mm-hmm. is part of the red scare <laughs> yeah and it's really interesting kind of seeing this like you know seeing it mentioned here right because i think you know oftentimes uh, and, and i mentioned this with uh oppenheimer as well there's a lot of like these historical eras that like people don't really process that like all of these things were sort of happening at the same time. Yeah. And they weren't in isolation. Um, and I, and I think it's really interesting seeing like the movie, like, you know, like, Oh yeah, Tulsa, like, Oh wait, Tulsa was like, you know, there was still like sort of like this, you know, native American oppression thing. Like at that point, like 
when you've like kind of like pieced together the history like in your mind without having the dates, you kind of think like, oh, well, like, you know, Wild West has already been like thoroughly conquered at that point, right? They're all off on the reservation, um, completely oppressed and whatnot. Where and you see that there's like, oh, there was a little bit um of that still going on here, but it's it's interesting seeing um that overall, like, you know, the, the seeing those parallel lines like drawn where it's like, oh, all of this is happening at the same time and whatnot. Yeah, and you, even like the early setting, right, is like you got Ernest Burkhardt coming back after World War One. Yeah. Know, Calvin Coolidge is there for like a scene, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's in an era that like in our popular conception of history, we would consider as like, you know, the early modern era, right? Like pr- at least pre-World yeah. War One, people think it's pretty developed, but they go to a historical period in a, a geographic space that is a lot closer to the Wild West than we would initially think, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it also just, like, like as you were mentioning, like, there's just all these eras within just American history alone, these events, these disparate periods, these areas of geographic historical study, right, that are so poorly understood um, in, the, in the popular narrative that are worth our study and attention. It was kind of reminding me, like, like one of the examples tangential to this that this makes me think of is like Louisiana was probably like the last state in the Union to be connect, or at least in the continental United States, to be connected to the like electric grid. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it took like Huey Long, you know, and that was like FDR yeah. era stuff, right? So it's yeah. like, it, you know, we think that like, well, America must have been like a fully developed country by like the 30s. Probably not. <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. And and like, you know, I mean, this is just, you know, when we think of World War One, we definitely think of it much more industrial United States. Exactly. Uh, than what you're seeing here. <laughs> no, for sure. And I think like that's why like that, again, not to bring up our usual political discussion on this program, right? But that regional theory of power in American history and politics, right? It mm-hmm. is, it is like, you know, dictated by like the Midwestern cities and the Northeast being this massive industrial hub. And the, even though the shipping and all the ports are on the East Coast, too. Yeah. All right. I, that was a good digression, but let's, let's try to get us back in. So, with the plot summary, as we mentioned, you know, this film is nearing four hours. I don't know if we're going to be able to do like a full plot summary. What I try to do is like structure out our discussion through the different story beats as they come up. Mm-hmm. And then we'll try to, you know, parse everything through effectively from there. So I guess let's, let's start with the very beginning of the film, right? So, this, what's the significance of that first scene where we see the Osage elders mourn the death of their culture, followed immediately by the discovery of oil on their lands? Yeah, I mean, I think this, uh, it's an important um, start for the movie, right? I think it sets the whole tone, right? The idea that, Mm -hmm. and it's a theme that continuously gets brought up, and, um, you know, maybe it's mildly xenophobic, maybe a little bit more justifiably uh, so in this case, considering how they're being treated. But, you know, the idea that, like, you know, they're getting that encroachment of white people on their culture and whatnot, right? Later in the movie, the mother's concerned, like, you know, sure, her favorite child's like the one that uh, 
hasn't given birth to any like you know mixed race you know hasn't diluted the bloodline with uh you know white folks um yet and stuff like that and you can see this pattern kind of throughout the movie and i think this really sort of sets the tone for that uh and then of course the discovery of oil is um maybe the um you know clearly it was already this foregone conclusion anyways that their culture would be um put into this place but the oil discovery i think um it's an important theme for this and i think that this required i mean, i think the movie does a good job where like if you're smart enough you can infer the significance the oil and like the head rights that are associated with them have um but the movie doesn't really ever come out right and explain what all of that is and what it means right um but you know the uh to, uh, to kind of give some context i know this might be slightly out of order with what you had in mind but um oh, that's fine that's fine but like the uh um, the Osage Nation uh, is actually kind of an interesting um, case for the Native Americans in the sense that they were, um, I think overall, I think it's probably safe to say they were a lot better off than uh, some of the other nations. Uh, they were forced from their ancestral homes, of course, like a lot of the others, but they actually purchased their own uh, reservation land, which is what the, where the movie takes place, right, in um, yeah. uh, Oklahoma. Um that's their land that they actually purchased rather than just it being like, you know, given as a government pittance. Uh, and because that land had oil um, that, you know, the government wanted, um, they did get access to it. And they have like all these like oil tycoons using it. But the head rights are sort of this subsidy that's given to these people um, for it being their land. Um, and there's there's a lot we can talk about with those and how it relates to even some, you know, modern concepts, right? I mean, in Alaska is probably... Um, a really good contemporary example where like people are paid a subsidy for living there because of, you know, oil and uh, other stuff that's, uh, you know, done there for economic productivity. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I, I think I was just trying to do like some cursory reading in anticipation of this. And it's like the Osage getting kicked out of like, what was, I think like Ohio, um, um I know they were in Missouri. They'd mentioned that in the like movie that. too. Uh, they might have had some history there. They notably weren't part of like the um uh, you know, like some of the uh, larger like uh, tribal nations and like tri- um mm-hmm. like they're their own nation. They weren't part of like any of those alliances um, like with like the Cherokees and whatnot. So there's that component. let's see they 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 developed in the Ohio and Mississippi River valleys. Oh, okay, okay, so that, um, that's what, yeah, because I think Osage near like, Missouri in the Mississippi River as a result of Iroquois expansion into the Ohio County in the aftermath of the Beaver Wars. Um, the Beaver Wars. Now that now, who, where's the film rights to that? There we go. That's 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 cinema. Um, yeah, I think like one another thing too. I was looking at is you know they did have the the ability to purchase their lands but it's still even today like this bizarre um state where the lands are held in trust by the federal government yeah so you know the head right system i don't think i mean i don't think you had to do an exposition scene in a movie that long but the movie doesn't like expect you to be smart enough to figure out how it works or basically it's like all profits and basically all the money that they're entitled to still has to be managed and accounted for by 
I mean, not not to go Alex Jones here, by, by the nanny state. No, I, I, that's not. Yeah, I mean, that, I that was another component too. Um, they there's a little bit of an allusion to it where like, um, uh, Molly has, uh, I think she has a guardianship, so she yeah. doesn't have unsupervised access. But some people have supervised access, so that was, um, something that happened a little bit later, like in terms of, like when these head rights were first given that wasn't necessarily a feature but they added this um thing because they didn't like the way they were spending their money uh so the the nanny state as you put it sort of t- takes this role on it but um the head rights i think they in total account for um if i recall it's like 10 percent of like all the money made from oil has to go back to the tribesmen just for you know being in that territory yeah, and I think like again, I, I said the nanny state joke because I like you know it was tongue in cheek, but I think what it really represents, right, is this like legal maneuver by which you know the regime of property rights that we call like you know the American bourgeois state, blah 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 blah, you know, um, is trying to subtly like you know maintain white supremacy in a certain sense where it's like okay. You guys struck oil. You guys made it rich. We're not going to let you have complete impunity, though. You don't, you don't get to have the white man's freedom in this sense. And yeah. you, see that, you see that come up in the way certain characters talk about money, wealth, um, and, and all of that in the film. Well, and, you know, the way um, it's discussed in general, too, like, you get the sense that, like, I mean, obviously, like, the uh, guardianship thing is is kind of one means of exploitation. They don't really show it that much in the movie. It just it just sounds like kind of this weird thing where, like, it, it seems like there's, like, you know, a lack of freedom. And, like, I mean, there is in a lot of ways uh, for people um, there. But you don't really get the full sense of it. But, like, it was a kind of a, a financial form of exploitation, too, because it was, like, these lawyers and whatnot were able to sort of like tap into some of that money um, mm-hmm. because they were their guardian and stuff like that. Um, and you get the sense like from a lot of the businesses um, in that movie, like I think all of them, I don't recall seeing a single. Oh, like, oh yeah. Native. Like from the, from the, um, like the, the undertaker to the doctors are all skimming off the top. Yeah. And I, I don't think there was a single like native run business that I recall seeing in the movie. No, not in the um, movie. No. But uh, I remember, like, yeah, especially like The Undertaker, there's like that explicit like scene with uh, Ernest where he's like saying, like, you're charging me Osage money. So, like, there's like very clearly there people taking advantage of this. And you could see like where there's the rush like early on in the movie for like, you know, these drivers and whatnot, eager and like, people taking pictures and stuff like that. Like all of these businesses that come across like very much like con artists and stuff like that, even when they're providing an actual service, uh, you, you really see like this sense of like just desire to like hustle as much money as you can from these people. Um, and that's kind of something that you see throughout the entire movie. Yeah. Yeah. I also think like, um, The the movie has this like recurring theme of like observing and being observed. And in that first scene where like um the elders are in the tent and having their mourning uh ritual, mm-hmm. um there's a child who's looking in through like a hole in the tent. And I kind of wonder if that's like um an illusion like a an alluding to the to this theme, right? Where if like people will observe things and 
how they observe them, their perspective of of making that observation and everything that comes with that, does that paint the truth and how people are treated? We'll we'll, we'll see we'll see this develop in the discussion, right? Yeah, I, th- I think that's um, that, that probably takes us to our next beat we can get into, and this this is kind of an overarching one. So Ernest Burkhardt and Hale King's uh, relationship throughout the film. Um, to me, this indicates, you know, an exploration of the idea of control of children by elders and complicity. Also, King's mentality as a cattle rancher seems to apply to all people he deals with. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's a, a great uh, and pretty succinct summary of it, right? I mean, definitely you get the impression that like King Hale is... Um, you know, like the cattle business is like barely brought up and barely seen, but you know he d- he does seem very much like this domineering figure who's treating people, especially the Osage, uh, like cattle, uh, in the in the, in a very dehumanized way, right? It doesn't necessarily ma- you know, th- making sure they're kind of all in a row that they're doing uh, what basically serves his profit motive the most, um, and that seems to be the main objective. Um, and I think. Yeah, you get that, you know, sort of um, elder and child uh, relationship with him and Ernest throughout the movie where, like, you know, eventually Ernest kind of breaks through, right? But, you know, he's he's very easily manipulated throughout almost the entirety of the movie up until, like, you know, the last, um, you know, 20 to 30 minutes or so. Yeah, and I think, like, the thing about... Robert De Niro's performance as King Hale, one, he does like such a convincing um, caricature of like a Southern robber baron political boss type that like, it it almost makes you wonder like why we don't have like a New York machine movie. I think that'd be great. Like a boss tweed like uh, series. Oh yeah. Yeah. That'd be pretty tight. Right. But um, his, his interaction with the Osage is actually pretty unique, right? Like he he speaks their language, he understands their culture, he's very comfortable around them. Um, but he also like is observing them all the time, right? Like mm-hmm. there was that the other white guy who married an Osage woman, and he got the sense that something was up and he starts praying for her. So it gives you this sense that, like, well, he's concerned for everybody deeply, right? Um, and even like at the start of the movie, you know. He, you know, he instructs Ernest, like, here's a book, start reading about their culture. And is also like, you know, you may have the perception that you should keep speaking. No, stay quiet, you know. But I think, like, there's also this manipulation and instruction going on, right? Where um, from the jump, he's basically trying to put the idea in Ernest's head of, like, well would you be interested in having a relationship with a native woman? Would you be interested in making a lot of money? And of course you have that hilarious scene where he's like, you know, playing blackjack, but you know, like like there is this like clear vibe of like this, you know, um, desperate, desperate cash strapped nephew coming to his uncle hat in hand and his uncle being like, Oh, well, uh, you like women. Oh, yeah, yes, sir. I, I do love women. You know, like, yeah. you, had, oh, you had that whole vibe Speaking going on. Speaking of which, this is a more stylistic thing. Was it just me or De Niro's accent, like, just, like, vanish throughout the movie? Uh, 
which one? His like uh like the southern, like the you know that like the one that you were doing. Like the like, sort of not not quite a plantation owner, but you know, that kind of I, I think because the Oklahoma accent is is different from like the usual southern accent, so there is yeah. that aspect to it, but I think like I thought like to me it seemed like eventually it was just like this is just Robert De Niro at a certain point. At, probably like in like the very stern scenes, he probably was just speaking plainly, but it wasn't he wasn't, you know, full on like, hey, I'm I'm William Hale King over here. Like he wasn't yeah. doing that shit, but there was definitely points where like the accent was more put upon, and I kind of wonder like, does he do like the, you know, like glad handing, backslapping, like white guy voice? I'm not talking about Robert De Niro, but William Hale. Was he trying to be like this amiable, amicable, jolly guy to certain people and then a more neutral and conniving guy in like private settings? That's fair, yeah. So there is there is that aspect to it. But I think like, you know, as the as their relationship progresses through the film, um, you know, it it's one of like God damn it, boy, you had one job. Like, that's basically his entire, like, uh, approach to Ernest in the whole film. Yeah. And then there's, like, this one scene at, like, the end. Actually, actually throughout the movie, but it's it's especially heinous towards the end where, like, um, you know, as all the murders occur, you know, Hale, like, puts on this very convincing performance of, like, mourning and death, but it's also, like, this kind of, like, wasp evangelical fake like um piety kind of thing you know where he's just like oh they've gone back to the lord kind of thing and it feels very sick yeah. to your stomach when you well, hear and, it and there's a lot of that stuff that really like tips like the hat early on like assuming you didn't weren't spoiled by like reading the book or knowing like the actual history of like this like particular case and whatnot right. um which i i didn't know anything but like there's some stuff early on where it's just like it comes across like okay this guy's completely disingenuous right where there's like the scene where after i think it was after anna's murder uh where he's like oh i'll personally fund the reward for you know and th- that immediately i was like okay this guy's 100 behind it and there was there had already been like a f- couple little like little teases at that point about who might be responsible for these but that like 100 i was like okay yeah he's he's the kingpin behind this 100 so especially when he's like oh make sure you tell me whatever information you get and it's like okay yeah like this guy is <laughs> trying to control things like yeah, this is 100 exactly. super obvious at that point exactly like a classic fake ally stuff yeah but I think, like, yeah, the end where, like, um, one of Ernest's kids has actually died. I forget of, like, was it Whooping Cough? Yeah, yeah, he dies of Whooping Cough. Yeah. And then, like, he's, like, heartbroken, crying in his cell. And then you have King Hale in the cell over just, like, doing the false piety thing of, like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, like, God, one of your children has returned to you. And it's, like, it's it's brilliant villainy. You know, to like <laughs> it's 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 brilliant villainy to see acted out on stage, but at yeah. the same time, it's like, oh god, this guy sucks. This guy's fake as yeah. hell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. So on a similar note, too, Ernest and Molly's relationship is it tainted by his relationship to his uncle, and more broadly, how do we even begin to characterize this kind of abuse and exploitation? Yeah, this one's weird, right? And it's like it's it's one of those things that like I the little epilogue for this movie, I felt 
kind of cheated a little bit with, right? Where it was just sort of like, oh, yeah, she divorced him after this. And it was like, yeah, that's like the natural conclusion after, you know, your husband has been like poisoning you. Right? <laughs> that you probably are going to ditch him. Um, which I mean, obviously, yeah, like, I mean, very clearly it's, it's tainted by his uncle's relationship. Right. I mean, there's, there's like, there's that, maybe there's that truth, right. That he, it wasn't necessarily set up by his uncle. Like maybe he did like truly like have, you know, some type of twisted love for her, but clearly was, you know, willing. I mean, I I don't think he was stupid enough to just think like, oh, this is purely just slowing her down. Uh, maybe he like believed that like, well, like, you know diabetes is bad enough to kill her anyways or whatever um but you know you don't you don't really see like the disintegration of their relationship ever uh we're just sort of told about it and i thought that was kind of a shame but i mean obviously at that point the movie had run for you know almost four hours at that point so i i kind of understand why but you know fair enough yeah it's kind of like the the will they won't they of most like romances and films is kind of played out more perversely here of like will he ever you know admit the truth to her will she figure it out kind of stuff yeah um but i think to me right it's like especially in in those times um you know especially in like a conservative approach and definition of the family right Mm-hmm. You have the patriarch basically controlling his son's actions. You know, your sons are who inherit um, your property and, like, help you maintain it. Um, and also, you know, to, you know, maintain your wealth, you will order them to do whatever it takes. You know, daughters are there to, you know, further your line. And any women who marry into the family are are the same. And especially if you take his, like, you know, cattleman approach to it he sees everybody as livestock to be, you know, expended at some points. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, whatever, like sincerity might have been in earnest, like affection for Molly is, I, I would argue immediately tainted, um, by his uncle pulling the strings. Yeah. And in the fact that like, he's, <sighs> Completely, I mean, in some cases, he is directly responsible for, like, the death of some of her family members. Yeah, Um, yeah. And I I read this when I was reading some of the actual events. Like, her mom, the movie made it seem like she just died because she was old and sick already. But apparently she was also poisoned. Possibly, Um, yeah. And, like, like, to the point where, like, she, like, Ernest was in part convicted for her murders as well. Um, so like she was part of that, that trial was like, you know, that whole family was killed, but like the movie, in my opinion, did not make it, it made it seem like it was just the sisters that had been killed, not, um, the mother. Um, but you know, it's like when it's like, you've like, how much can you really say that you love someone if you've like slaughtered their family? Oh no. And it's, it's especially like, like, you know, it, it hurts to watch as the audience. Cause it's like, she sincerely did love him actually. And like, she put up with yeah, so that's what much. It feels like. Yeah, like, and it was it wasn't until like the bitterest end that she's mm-hmm. like, okay, fuck this guy, I'm out. Yeah, and, and, and I, it's a shame that we never get to see like just what was that like? What was like just like the fuck it moment? Like, what did that look like? But and I, and I wonder if that was even documented. You know, like what? Yeah, how how much was there to go off of? Because when you adapt something to film, sure. you have to reimagine it, right? So I, I wonder like. 
I personally like the twist at the end. We will get into this, but I I wonder like if the twist was necessary because that's where the narrative ends and you have to figure out how you're going to adapt this. Yeah, that could be. Um so th- this actually leads us naturally into the into the next one. I think we can we can get into this. So the Osage versus white people. Um how are their scenes handled through the film? Do perspectives change based on who's centered? Also, how do we characterize the film's treatment of race, colonialism, etc. thereof? That's pretty loaded. <laughs> it, it, it is, it is kind of loaded. I'm like, oh God, you better answer this one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and here's where I, I think in some ways um, the film does a good job of it. Um, I mean, there's, I'll be honest, um, I assume your movie opened the same way with the Martin Scorsese coming out at the start of it about how he worked with, you know, members of the Osage Nation on this and stuff like that. Yep, yep. Yeah, which uh, kind of struck me as a little, like, you know, masturbatory, to be honest, but, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> I just, just so you know, I'm like, I'm like the North Korean news lady about Martin Scorsese. Like, I was okay with it, but I Fair understand. enough. Yeah, it was just, it was just kind of like, it gave me the vibe where it was like, you know, like, I like, trust me, guys, I got the N word pass or something. Like, you know, like that, kind of, that was kind of the vibe I got. But, and I, and I think, like, there's some things where I think, and this is like, goes to like a larger, issue and like i mean it's really only like an issue when it comes to like the race component of it but like the way Ernest is portrayed throughout the movie i think and maybe some of it is the is the casting like leonardo DiCaprio was a really well beloved actor and whatnot and it's like i feel like for someone that's really as scummy as he is like the character he comes across he's like they he tries his hardest to make him seem as sympathetic as possible um, both from the way the movie's written and the way, like, where it just feels like, oh, well, like, he's unwittingly brought into, you know, bringing harm onto, you know, his his family um, and his wife's family and all that stuff, where it's, you know, it's, you know, he's just along for the ride. Um, but, like, obviously, you know, the way, in general, from, like, a macro level, the way the race issue's handled, right? I mean, you, you see, like, the exploitation. We talked about this before, where just, like, kind of profiteering off of the Osage money and stuff like that. They're obviously sort of these targets for basically a money bag. Um, and part of um, the head rights issue too, that uh, we didn't necessarily mention so far is uh, there was going to be a change to the law regarding them. And there ultimately is as a result of all these murders. So there was a rush to kind of get those head rights as soon as possible, because um, I think they were going to be like forfeited back to like the nation as a whole. Mm. Um, so there was kind of a rush, like, oh, we need to really kill these people quickly to get their head rights. Um, there's, uh, was it, was it Blackie later in the movie where it's like revealed that like he, like, or was it someone else who had like the wife? Uh, and he's like, oh, well, like, you know, if I adopt her kids and they, they happen to die, do I get their, <laughs> do I inherit their, uh, uh, their head rights and stuff like that too. So no, it, it wasn't Blackie, but I know who you're talking about. I yeah, I, I couldn't remember was. if it was him or someone else. Like, because it was that part of the movie. It started just kind of like that was like a weird like just sequence of exposition dumps near the end. I thought um, where it was just like, okay, this is like the story for like all these people and how they're involved with this stuff. Um, but um, the and the, the change to the law uh, later for the head rights thing, just to kind of clarify, is that uh, kind of to stop these murders, um, like because several of them were not solved, 
um, only the ones that we actually see in this movie were solved. Um, they uh, passed a law that basically made it so like non Osage people couldn't actually inherit these rights. Um, so like the ones that had already been inherited by non Osage folks, you know, those were you know fine, but the rest of them couldn't be. So you couldn't, you weren't necessarily incentivized to you know marry off to some you know fine uh, Indian woman to then slaughter her in her sleep uh, or whatever. Um, but you get the sense, right, and where it's like, and, and like you were talking about King Hale as well, uh, there's this performative desire to uh, placate these people. Uh, the Osage uh, come across as very passive in a lot of ways. Um, like, they are trying to be proactive in stopping, like, these murders and stuff like that. But, you you know, you get a reference uh, during their speech, right, you know, like, we're no longer warriors. Uh, back in, you know, our old ways, we would have, you know slaughter the people who are doing this to us but you know we you know have kind of have joined society on like the white man's terms as it were and you can see that those terms are you know maybe maybe not the worst financially but definitely uh not great uh in terms of uh you know the social and you know societal constructs about them yeah, I I definitely I can see where you're coming from there, and I agree with a lot of that. Um, something that this is bringing to mind is I think there was that interview of like one of the Osage like um, advisors who worked on the film and like his initial like reaction to the film, right? And he talks about um, in his read like the film is about like how long will you be complicit in racism, and I mm. think that's you know like a good way to understand the moral quandary facing Ernest, right? And like you mentioned before, it's like he is presented as somewhat sympathetic. I would say, you know, how much of that is is intentionally and how much of that is because he's a protagonist of the film, I don't know. But the one thing that you were mentioning and like how he's presented as sympathetic, um, I think it goes back to that like family dynamics angle, right? I think if, you know, for those of us who've grown up in strict families or had conservative families or we've seen things play out in these dynamics, right? You know, he has to answer to William Hale. Yeah. And it's it's the whole, like, well, I was ordered to do it quandary, right? You know, well, it's it, not... Oh, it, go ahead, it's go interesting. I was going to say, you know, sorry to interrupt, but, like, when you were talking about the interview point, I, I, I hadn't seen that interview, but it's it's an interesting one to consider with... You know, because he, I, I feel like in some ways, like, granted, he's a lot more active and, you know, carrying out racism and exactly, stuff like that exactly. than, uh, than like the average person. But like, I kind of wonder if it's like, if, if maybe that's part of the point of him being sympathetic, too, is that he feels like what we kind of think of, like, when we, you know, like, to quote, you know, Martin Luther King, right, the white moderate. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, and granted, like calling him a moderate when he is literally killing uh, people feels uh, you know, it feels like a stretch, but it, he definitely feels like he is portrayed that way as much as possible. And I think that might be, you know, maybe maybe that's an angle I wasn't really considering, that that's something that, like, is is deliberate to make you think, like, oh, yeah, like, if this, like, you know, look at what this person is, you know, willing to do and abide, um, despite being, you know, supposedly a decent human being. Right, right. Like, he's not... He's not a self-directed person, you know, like mm -hmm. he kind of just stumbles into town looking for his next thing to do. You don't get a sense of 
you know, why did he serve? He probably has no idea why he served to begin with. They never um, touch on that. <laughs> they never touch on that. And like, I just get the sense that like, he's always been the kind of guy who's just like stumbling from place to place, which is the most layman thing any of us can do. Right. But, you know, as soon as his uncle puts him in the conspiracy, you know, he's following every single order. And I think, you know, that's, that's the, the common refrain in like the Nuremberg trials, right? I was just following mm-hmm. orders. Yeah. Um, how many people earnestly believe that? How many people, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> see, uh, and how many people like, you know, cynically say that? I don't know. But what I will, you know, if you take the film's thesis to heart, or if you take like our modern approach to things, right? You'd argue like, no, there always is a choice and the choices fight back. But I guess that's the question is like, do you, do you hold Ernest accountable for not acting because he felt like he was under his uncle's pressure? Or do you hold him accountable because quote, I love money. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's that your read of the, of, of that motive will paint how you view, view Ernest. And I think it's a little bit of both. I think he sincerely wanted the money and was willing to do whatever it take to get rich. Um, but his sure, conscience- right. it's not like he was, you know, just like accidentally benefiting from oh, yeah. you know, these oh, circumstances. Yeah. No, he, I mean, again, this guy was a, was a criminal. Let's, let's get it. Let's, there's, yeah. Without a doubt. And I also think that, you know, he was very willing to just bow to his uncle on anything and everything. Even when it, when it felt like he was resisting, it felt more like he was stressed out by doing it rather than his conscience. But then there are like moments where like you can tell like he has a genuine affection for his wife and he doesn't know like, you know, you know, like the, the morally upright person in this case would be like, you know what? Let's stop racism. But that's not him. <laughs> that's not him. I mean, it's not even so much like let's stop racism. Let's just like. I mean, like, I don't, I don't necessarily th- like. I mean, like, yeah, there's like obviously some like racist intents here and stuff like that, but I don't think they necessarily. Um, I, I mean, if they if they had a way to like get white people's money, I think they would have done it too, right? Like, not to like be like, oh, well, they're like you know, they were all hustling each other. They were, they were all yeah, hustling like, each other, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they were they were doing that as well, but um. It, the the real implications I think come from like there's a few references to it where it's like you know killing I, I can't remember who says it um, but there's someone who says some line about like killing an Osage person like you you'd be you know uh, more likely to be convicted of like killing a dog or something like that uh, or some other type of uh, animal but the you know the the idea is like that there's like this systemic racism that's not super discussed in this. Um, but discussed enough that I, I think it's um, it's interesting that that is you know one of the main um, themes of the movie for for sure. And then like when it comes to the Osage like perspective in the film, this is another thing because I think for the perspective change I was mentioning right when like Molly is in the in the focus of certain scenes, like you can tell there's like a tonal shift in the film. There is like this, you know, like genres change as you were calling it. Right. I didn't necessarily find it jarring, but I think like that, you know, that difference was necessary to kind of communicate. uh, To be clear, I didn't necessarily think like her stuff was like the jarring bit. It was more so kind of like the way things changed later, like with, 
uh, some of the more court drama focused things and stuff like that. Yeah, it, it, it definitely turned into like, you know, Scorsese's classic crime bits, right? Where it's like the gang yeah. gets rounded up by the cops. There's the big court trial. Like it definitely t- turned into classic Scorsese towards the end a bit. I I agree. Um, But I think like um the tonal shifts at the start of the movie, I felt like they were good because it, it sets up just how different the two of them are. But also like... I appreciate the subtlety in the background of how the Osage nation has been changed by, Mm -hmm. by American money. And it kind of, you know, there's this subtext that's going on in the film. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but basically like, it's kind of why like that first scene where they mourn the death of their culture. Now that the kids are learning English, you know, they, they they're kind of transformed into like, I wouldn't say like I mean you know we would call them American aristocracy, but I would basically argue that like no they're 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 the regular bourgeois now, and a lot like how the Osage become tremendously wealthy with the discovery of oil money, you had a similar process going on in um, Tulsa as well with mm-hmm. um with you know the black population there in Black Wall Street, so I kind of like had this at least in my estimation right, I'm not white but I'm also neither of these backgrounds. I have I had this like you know anecdotal read in my opinion of like you know to make it rich in America or to strike success is this kind of like assimilation into whiteness right I don't think that you can inherently separate that reality from success or wealth in America that's at least my read of events and I think I you know the the oddity that white people might have had when encountering Tulsans or encountering people from Osage country, I wonder to what extent it was like, you know, these people are rich, but also they're enjoying all the things rich white people enjoy. I don't know if that's like, it was an intentional subtext or if that's subtext that I mm. caught and I'm putting my own opinions on. I'll, I'll admit that up front. But I mean, I definitely think the Tulsa uh, comparison is. I, I I think that's super super subtext. If it is like subtext, because I don't, I don't necessarily know that that was like because that requires a lot it's more. Not, it's not brought up in the movie. It's yeah, it's yeah. not brought up in the movie at all, right? But that's just like stuff mm-hmm. I I'm I'm putting my own spin on. But like you know, like you said, where they have that you know all the elders meet and they're like, we got to do something about these murders. We're not warriors anymore. You know, it's kind of them like, this is a society that's not only adapting to moving out of their traditional mode of living and now adopting, you know, the, at the time, modern American state with its own mm-hmm. legal obfuscations, yeah. bourgeois norms, you know, money and lawyers versus, you know, um, going up to fight people, right? Um and trying to navigate, you know, the system within. So it's like, you know, when people of color try to play the system to their advantage, how how is that uh, going to play out for them? And I think we see in the film, right, that, you know, the criminal element will resist that with both judicial and extrajudicial means. And we'll, we'll probably get into that a bit later. Yeah, and I mean, I would say, though, they're not necessarily leveraging the system to their advantage. They're just trying to get it to work the way it's intended to. 
Exactly. Right? They're trying to get it to work in a more egalitarian fashion. And, like, you know, they eventually sort of, I mean, I, you know, I, I kind of get maybe that, that pro-cop sentiment from the source material in the sense that, like, you know, in addition to, like, what I said about the FBI, that, like, any of their forms of legal recourse before that were, like, intentionally obfuscated, right? Like, they were, it was, you know, like, the private investigator is killed. Um, you know, like, all the things that, like, all the avenues they were pursuing, they weren't able to leverage them, not because, like, the system was, like, inherently racist against them, but because, like, there was a criminal element explicitly blocking that in intervention. Yeah, exactly. And I think, like, it is this, like, you know, American phenomenon, right? Of like, we all think the system's going to work for us. And then when this, when we first discover it doesn't, you know, oftentimes in dizzying and in horrifying ways, we find out just how the system won't work for us. I also think yeah. there's this, the, the one scene where, like, after Ernest and Molly get married, the house is full of white people all of a sudden was like, <laughs> That was, it, that like was an one, interesting scene. That was an interesting scene. And it's weird, too, because, like, there's, like, that old white couple that's, like, super, super fucking racist. Yeah. And I had no idea who they were. I'm like, I do, did these people show up earlier and I just forgot them and they don't show up again. And, like, it's there's a lot of, like, just background people in this movie that, like, I don't know if they're there to just, like, provide commentary. Um, I, I get the impression that that's all they're there for. Um, yeah. Was just to, like, hey, like, here's, you know some white old white folks here to talk about demon spawn right. um, like that. It, it felt like that was like their entire purpose. <laughs> I think, I think like, again, like the, the interesting part of that scene, right. Is it kind of shows like how they feel displaced immediately in their own homes with these newcomers. Yeah. I think, I think there's that macro narrative there too. Like that, um, there's like you know and i think you know it's interesting because like the way we normally think of like how like white folk had like overtaken you know native cultures and whatnot we primarily think of violence disease you know guns germs and steels uh you know that that's the kind of stuff that we think of right um whereas here you get this much more um uh, you know, obviously there's the criminal element of it too, but you know, this more like legal and like s sort of civil effort to do it, right? Like, and, and you know, frankly, yeah. like if, if if they were more patient and you know maybe you know they were motivated by like the law and whatnot, uh, expiring to sort of become more um, aggressive with it. If they were more patient, right, you would just get the sense that like, oh yes, like the white culture would just sort of you know subsume this native uh culture right like it's you know you've already seen where like the religion has been injected into it um they're they're all worshipers of you know christ the lord and you know they're christians uh they go to church and all that stuff uh you see like the white people in their homes you see all this stuff uh where it's and not in a way that they're like particularly resistant of right it's just like yeah like this is just the facts of life and whatnot and i kind of wonder if um that is like one of the things that like you know like i i think it's a good message from this movie that like and not 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 good in the sense that it like is a good thing that happened or anything it, like it, that, it but was more like it was good they explored it yeah yeah because yeah, it's it's something that is really underexplored i think in our, our popular understanding of um the way you know native americans have been subjugated here historically 
Yeah, having it boiled down to like the family level is it, it is an interesting perspective to it all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like that also speaks to like um, like a uniqueness of like the American colonial style, right? Which is like, I think I've I, I've talked to people like obliquely about some of this stuff, and some of this is like anecdotal, but you know, European style racism is very cut and dry, us versus them style shit. Yeah. Um, whereas like, you know, in the U S like America, like is very close to like having like plurinational identity in a lot of places, especially like the South, if you think about it, but the racial hierarchy acts more like a class, like a caste system in effect, um, than like a traditional us versus them bigotry, you know? So you have like you know, like intermarriage is very common in the American context. You have people working and living in like the same regions a lot of the times, like whether it's in the past or in the mm-hmm. present. But I think like, you know, the the racial caste system plays out in the, you know, in 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 uh instances of mass violence, but also in, you know, how the legal system and how systemic elements are carried out on people on a you know case to case basis, right? Yeah. So that that's just like a uniqueness of like the American colonial experience, right? Is that people have always kind of been uh, more prone to like be up next to one another, even though they're different. And I think that's why like the American conservative or the American reactionary element is so frightened of uh interracial relationship or interracial marriage because it 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 immediately contradicts you know the classic style of racism yeah 100 percent, and like that's kind of the uh the point you know right is it's like it's it's kind of you know the, it, it, all of your justifications for racism are inherently undermined by you know mixed race stuff like right you know the, the idea you can't it's hard to write it off as like, you know, like they're, they're subhuman when it's like, well, they're compatible with human, with, you know, what you view as humans. And, uh, the more the races and the blood mixes, then like you sort of turn everything into sort of this subhuman level in their minds. Right. So it kind of runs like, you know, it's a direct threat to the core tenets of those beliefs. Yeah. And I think that's like the, the most like unique aspect of American styles of racism, right. Is that, you can hold the most hostile and like bigoted views about people you are in direct proximity with rather than a neat distance away from you. So there is that on a, on a more, on a less depressing note, what did you think of like some of the magical realism elements in like the Osage focus scenes, like um, the owl when um, they, the mother was dying or, um, when she crosses into the next world, she's greeted by her ancestors. What did you think of that? Um, I, I liked it. Like it was something that like, again, I, I'm a little ignorant about a lot of the, um, symbolism of a lot of like native cultures and stuff like that. And I, mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm sure he worked closely with, you know, people, uh, in the Osage nation to like, you know, it, it, you know, c- appropriately address these things. When I mean, I was aware of like the, the relevance of owls and stuff like that, but I, I thought it was a good visual to show that, right? And they explained it, right? It wasn't like it was something that, like, oh, hey, like, yeah, you know, hope you did your homework on what this fucking owl means. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, it was like, you know, like, oh, okay, like, you know, the, the owl is sort of, 
it, like this kind of ill omen about how our you know the you know sort of the death of our blood and stuff like that. Uh, which I, ironically, I mean, paired with the conversation we just had, it's sort of like the inverse version of it, right? It's like there's there is that kind of racism uh, with that. I mean, I don't necessarily know that they necessarily view white people as, um, you know, subhumans and whatnot, but they definitely don't seem to. Uh, at least the mother didn't seem fond of the intermingling. Yeah, it definitely. It, it the subtext with those scenes kind of felt more like. You know, we're on the short end of the stick of this interaction, and they seem to have, you know, gotten the upper hand from this. And it's like, I, I think from, like, the macro narrative sense, like, you get, like, not only that sense of, like, the short end of the stick, but, like, the idea that, like, um, they're facing, like, extinction. Like, these, they, these you know, half-Osage children are kind of props for, you know, for profit, really. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and that's kind of you know there's there's something to that right the, the the and like you you don't like you don't really explore like the children's lives much right i mean there's um a scene ironically very similar to the one in oppenheimer where they like send off the the child uh because they can't take care of it um i mean they still had the other two i guess but the one that inevitably uh dies from a uh, whooping off or whatever um respiratory illness it was yeah um but, you know, I mean, like, it wasn't like she was, like, a character in the movie. She was just, you know, there as, like, oh, hey, like, you know, a, ch- a, co- a child's dead. Isn't that sad? Um, and, you know, maybe it's, you know, like, if you sort of buy into more, like, biblical or spiritual elements, like, maybe that that's sort of a representation of their crimes and stuff like that. And I think there might have been an indirect thing, right? Because, like, I mean, he was, uh, Molly was already being, like, kind of poisoned at that point, right? I think it was implied yeah. that the insulin she was always getting was, you know, impure, or, like, designed to, like, slowly kill her. Um, and, like, you know, King Hale's, like, kind of, you know, like, hey, why would you get her pregnant right now? Like, you idiot. Um, so, like, I think, you know, there's that sense of, like, sin there as well. But again, it's sort of just, like, this prop of, like, this is the, like, human cost of your actions. Uh, not that, like, this is, like, a fleshed-out character with their own motivations. Yeah. Very, very Catholic, uh, aesthetic choice there from Scorsese. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, next up, the use of photography and the newsreel. What do you make of um, the use of those scenes, and what do you think is implied there? Um, yeah, that was a good question. I, I don't. I, I'm trying to think. Well, I can't remember what the first one was. Uh, there was like two scenes with it, right? There was, was the one where the Tulsa massacre and whatnot. Uh, and then I don't. I, I know. I know you have a theory for it. I didn't necessarily think that much of it, other than like it does come up a couple times that like as like sort of a um kind of showing like the general pattern of like racial resentment and stuff like that in the era. Um, what, do you remember what the other time it was used? Um, I think it was like initially like to talk about like the Tulsa, the Tulsa oil money. That was definitely one of the times uh, it was brought up. Okay. Um, and then also like just the additional scenes of like all the people who got their picture taken. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, I don't know, I, I've seen that, like, so much in a lot of, like, historical things from, like, this era. I didn't think that much of it stylistically. It just seemed like kind of like one of those, like, genre staples 
uh, or period piece staples from that time, in my opinion. But like, I, I think you know, it's kind of showing the. Um, I I just kind of got a sense of, like this is just showing like what's going on. I, I know you had that your 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 theory that you want. Uh, I'll let you talk about that for like the the Tulsa reel specifically though. Yeah. So I mean, like like I was mentioning earlier, you know, the scene of the girl peering into the tent as the you know elders are are mourning. So there is is this like subtle theme of like observing and being observed. Who's watching you? And then I think you can kind of parrot it into like you know information as a tool of you know control knowing things about other people to like you know target them i don't necessarily know if like scorsese had like that as an explicit idea when coming up with the film but that these are just like the ideas i'm getting from like how how i perceive the film right which opens up a new meta narrative (laughs) but um you know i think it's like again like all these white photographers um taking pictures of it of you know the osage it kind of starts setting this like you know idea in the film of not only are is the other able to observe you they can pass that information along and i think that's the difference between like the oral tradition of passing on information versus like you know now you have a picture now you can see something clear as day now you can pass that information on and then the newsreel as a way to like you know at least for the time get expedited news about what's going on in the world um you know it presents like this kind of development right it is uh you know at that time uh do some key yes yes (laughs) (laughs) of course of course um and then i i definitely saw like a lot of reads in this similar vein when after the movie came out of you know photography being used to use as a thematic device to explore this idea of who tells your story who's looking at you who's representing you right and then in the scene where um you know hale's in the movie theater and he's looking at the film reel about uh the tulsa bombings um, mm-hmm. this isn't necessarily my idea, but I saw this theory, um, on Twitter and I think, I think it makes sense where basically, you know, he sees the bombings and then not too long after that, um, they get, they, they start initiating a plan to bomb the other white guy's house to, okay, get the head rights. Right. Yeah. Um, and that also just like really heightens the tensions and really like um exacerbates the the murders, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like I think like that that period is still known as like the reign of terror, right? So like that was probably like, you know, a, a major exacerbatory event in that reign of terror. Where and like you had like people in, as soon as the bomb goes off, you have people like screaming in the streets, like it's just like Tulsa all over again. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good so, point. I, 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 I think, like, um, you know, film and um, photography as a means of conveying information and the, the phenomenon of being able to observe people and make meaning of observation, it's a, it's a theme that I think is getting explored in the film. I just don't know how deeply um, it was intended to be explored in the film. 
Sure, yeah, I, I, I buy that. Um, that takes us to our next one, and this is this is the one that I I really started cooking up some theories for. So, the Masonic paddling scene. What was what was your reaction to that? <laughs> um, I, I I was I was a bit surprised by it. Like, and I was like, like the Masonic stuff. I was like, okay, like, so of course there's a Freemason conspiracy in here. And then, of course, you get, like, the the paneling itself. I mean, I it seemed like a bit of, like, mostly just, like, I think I think there for levity and whatnot, right? It reinforces that hierarchy between uh, King Like the family dynamics. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, and, you know, yeah, that was, it seemed like that was the primary purpose here. And then probably, like, doing it with a bit more levity, right? Like, seeing, like, an actual, like, paddle being used on a grown man, right? That's always going to be, like, kind of funny. Um, so yeah, that's, that was kind of my, my read on it. Yeah, I, it definitely had me like just raise an eyebrow a bit, but I think like, you know, the, people overstate masonry as like devil worship kind of stuff. You don't really mm-hmm. need to go that far. You don't have to, because it's like, again, the film already points out that like all the white businessmen are in on the conspiracy, right? Yeah. Um, King Hale is like, you know, this well-connected, uh, political boss. He knows all the judges. He knows all the lawyers. He knows all the businessmen in town. He's well-connected. The doctors, like. The doctor. It's like, so all the bourgeois guys who would in the, back in the day be Masons. Well, well there's, <laughs> a, there's, there's a few people he doesn't seem as can, like, or he's like taking advantage of because there is, um. He is taking advantage of insurance fraud and stuff like that. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, uh, because yeah. they do mention like later on where there's like the guy, like the I'm assuming of in business or where he's like had signed off like oh like fire insurance and then he like literally burns his farm the next day. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, and then of course there's like the uh, the other guy who he had insurance money on uh, if he, I believe if it was only if he didn't kill himself, which is why I was confused when they were like you know he's supposed to look like he killed himself. But you know, there's the life insurance and all that stuff. So like, there's there's a little bit of an adversarial um, relationship with some of the uh, bourgeois interest. Yeah, for sure. Like, there's always the competing bourgeois interests. Yeah. Like, different classes will, or like different professional classes will compete with another. Yeah. But at least like in you know, in his time, right? Like, oil man, cattle man, like that was the mm-hmm. traditional rich guy. Um role you know so yeah. that that's not too shocking um him get and him getting paddled like i think was just like you know him reasserting that's like you're an, you're an, you're a petulant child do as do as i command um the one thing that did tie into the book that i think like you know it shouldn't be understated like like the masonic link um because mm-hmm. when he turned himself in he was wearing a perfectly pressed suit, shoes shined to a gleam, a felt hat, and an overcoat with his diamond-studded Masonic lodge pin fastened to the lapel. Uh. So it's like, I'm sure he was definitely trying to signal to the judge, a lawyer, somebody like, guys, come on. You've, you've seen me in the back rooms. Come on. Come on. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's your guy. We pay dues. Come on. Um, and it's, it's the kind of thing, right, where it's like, you know, when you look at, like, crimes of the elite today... You know, they they just do it in the open these days. Whereas, like, back in the day, you know, they had things like Masonic Lodges. And I think there's even, like, a scene, too, where it's, like, 
you know, the 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 Masonic con- connection is actually pretty mundane if you think about it. Like in the same building where the doctor's office is, there's like a scene of like Hale talking to I think like um Molly's like first husband and like when this when the camera pans back to him, there's like a painted wall saying Masonic Lodge to your left. Oh, okay. So it's like it's it's not they're not trying to like make some kind of like deep wink. Like I think they're actually trying to point that like no, the Masonic link is actually more mundane. Like all the rich guys sure. in town were probably Masons. Hell, you even had like that one like blink and you miss it scene of like the sheriff was also like the grand wizard of the local clan. Oh yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I remember there was the uh, that that very brief KKK came. I forgot who was uh, you know under the uh, the hood as it, it were. was that turkey neck motherfucker. Yeah, That's all I remember. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. <laughs> But um, the one like blink and you miss it line that I think like throw like ties everything together, um, shows that how well researched the film is in my opinion. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, William King Hale was a, a segregationist. That is like a that is a known fact about him. It's mentioned in the book. Oh, um, he was a member of the Democratic Party. He was a I wouldn't know if he was like a, a the boss of the Oklahoma machine, but like definitely a a democratic machine sure yeah um yeah and then he mentions like in that scene where he's paddling um Ernest, you know i am a 32nd degree mason like what mm-hmm. you know don't get wrapped up into the occult um perception of masonry what i really think like that indicates right is that he's part of the scottish right of freemasonry what that leads you to is like th- this is the right of freemasonry all the confederates were in these are the clubs oh. these guys were hanging out in, you know? I didn't know that. Okay. So it's like, you know, you, you, don't, you don't need to do, like, something as esoteric as Freemasonry. Like, you know, rich people will gather in all sorts of groups, like the Rotary Club. Now you have, mm-hmm. you know, PAX. You have ALEC. You have the Heritage Foundation. Sure. You can do yeah. some of this stuff in open, in the open now. You don't have to do it in secret. But, yeah, you know, at the time, like, rich guys who were getting up to no good... I, I argue they were they were using Freemasonry to to enable it. And these were the show, the social groups where rich white men would, you know, collaborate and, you know, figure out how they could, you know, mm-hmm. invent new and creative ways to to exploit. Yeah. <laughs> exploit the people in the Osage country. Yeah, for sure. And considering that it was like, you know, a criminal enterprise. I mean, you know, that, that, that's like, how different is that from like a traditional, you know, mob film where like they all meet in the back of a restaurant or something. Right. Yeah. Um, so then let's get into this. This probably ties us to like the latter part of the film. So petitions to the federal government not being taken seriously and the arrival of the proto FBI and their investigation. How does the unraveling of the conspiracy play out? Yeah, so I mean, I guess like initially, it's not that so much that the petitions aren't taken seriously; it's that the petitioners are like removed from the picture before they're able to like do their job, right? Right. Um, like they do show that like the person that they had sent there to Washington is killed pretty quickly, um, presumably before he gets to do anything. Uh, but then the FBI comes, um, or I guess it's just the bureau at that. Point. What is the 
A Bureau of Investigation. That yeah, I can't remember if it's because uh, I remember reading like conflicting reports. If it was like now the FBI here, or if it was the Bureau of Investigation, or what? Because I, I'd read something or two that this was one of the first, if not the first, like murder investigation by the FBI. Um, but I don't know how accurate that necessarily is. But uh, it, it's you know it, it, it's one of those things where you kind of get the sense that like it's you know. We, it sort of portrays the conspiracy as sort of like this house of cards, right? That sort of comes crumbling down the minute, like, the FBI shows up, right? It becomes, like, really obvious. Like, once you have, like, these professionals who are not, like, in on everything, who are not, you know, incentivized to, you know, abide and part- even participate in these machinations, they're able to relatively quickly turn things around, right? I mean, other than the fact that they're sort of putting up with some, you know, kind of weird antics from, like, Ernest and other folks who are, you know, trying to deny things. But, like, they have things figured out pretty quickly, um, I think. And, and at that point, right, as the audience, like, we already kind of have everything figured out, too, at that point, right? There's no real mysteries there. Um, and um, and just to, just to interrupt you real quick, I'm sorry. Like that that isn't you know necessarily like the pro cop take that it needs to be, right? Because when you look at like sure. the era of the robber barons, you know, it took federal intervention yeah. to actually solve that issue. And like you know, I, I did say like the nanny stayed tongue in cheek earlier, but like this is the case for you know federal intervention and specifically like for a strong state where when things like this are just you know when shit is really hitting the fan you can call it you can you can call the cavalry in and create Mm. order you know well that's like kind of the drawback when you're like bringing in sort of your like modern sensibilities about different things of course of course to like older eras right not to like kind of you know like i know that that argument is used a lot to like sort of defend like well you know who cares if the founding fathers had slaves or whatever like you know men of their time all that shit but like there is like sort of like when you're just like kind of like when you make these more blanket statements like you know like if you like you know wear on your your sleeve a cab and you kind of like hold that as like this that has always been the case and whatnot there there it it does like you know that that's not a nuanced take and normally people like you know sort of acknowledge the nuances with it when they say it um they just don't want to you know say you know some cops are bastards doesn't exactly roll off the tongue as well (laughs) um and and you know specifically specify which cops are bastards, and then then he really gets start getting a impressive acronym. But uh, you know I, I I think that like when you when you do sort of make that sort of um, ossification, you sort of miss out that like yeah like the you know we have law enforcement for a reason, right? And like you know whether or not you prefer strong central government and stuff like that, it was essential in certain eras to prevent um, you know certain things right like that it's it's only with the fbi's intervention that this stuff is unraveled and it, and it unravels pretty quickly uh at least as it's portrayed in the movie right i mean obviously um in real life there were um i think up to like 60 uh murders uh and like the movie only sort of alludes to it uh like there being murders outside of it right where they sort of have the people like putting on the lights and stuff like that where they're like oh they want to stop the murders um, like there was a lot more going on than just what we see in the movie. Uh, and right. the, the FBI doesn't actually solve all of that, but for the narrative purpose, you do get the sense that, uh, it's maybe a little bit more pro cop as, you know, you might sort of simplify it as than uh, 
maybe even the reality in this particular case. Yeah, and I think like um the scene where it gets revealed who who all was part of the uh Bureau of Investigation, right? Like you mm-hmm. had the the native guy in deep cover. He, that, that dude was swagged out. He was looking cool in that movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was so like it, it was like one of those things. Like the movie did a lot where it sort of introduced uh, characters and concepts that like it like sort of explained later. But like I just remember like when he's introduced, it's like okay, but, like this is somebody, right? Yeah, and, like, like he's gonna come back later. Well, I, I'm pretty sure, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's like you had him in deep cover, then you had like the fake insurance agent. And then you have Jesse Plemons show up. It's like, I'm here with the board, uh, Bureau of Investigation from Mr. J. Edgar Hoover. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who's asking? Uh, me, sir. Like, that, that scene was like, oh, he's yeah. in trouble now. <laughs> and then you have them all on, like, the other side of the Hale property when, you know, Hale's trying to burn it down for the insurance money. Yeah. And, like, it kind of just, like, sets them up as, like, this... I. I guess you didn't need to like have them develop that way, but it kind of sets them up as like the rivals to like the Hale gang, if you can view them that way. And sort of like if for the purpose of this narrative, sort of like omniscient too. Yeah. Right? yeah. It's like, like, yeah, like they, they know everything. Like it's, they, it's all figured out. Yeah. And then like, because they have it all figured out, like the next scene is like, you know, as they're burning the Hale property, like you get like that, another magical realism scene but it like it's kind of like as the property is burning you get this like hellfire imagery and again this uh, more catholic imagery from scorsese here of like this this inferno of the hail machine on its like last last knee yeah um and then and then you have it like jump into the courts scenes too this is where um you know Brendan Fraser comes in as uh <laughs> as Ernest. What what did you think of his performance? Like like I think I think people are kind of overreacting to it. But what do you what did you think? Uh, it was definitely over the top, but in a like I I thought like for an entertainment purpose at least in the best way. Um, like just his like. Kind of, and you, and you kind of get the sense that, like, you know, like obviously the legal system has been around for forever, right? The court system's been around for a really long time, but you you get the sense that like things don't feel fully figured out in in that, right? Where like his objection is like so like kind of like ridiculous, but it works because right. like you know like there's just it, like things haven't been like quite as ironed out yet i guess uh and like maybe you know it's it's some of it the, like the role is the fact that you have you know um as we've mentioned you know sort of this uh legal inequality between uh osage and whites right right and i think like um you also have like the interspersed scenes of like all the different gang members getting arrested interrogating you had like i think the one the one obvious criminal blackie was his name basically like Shit, I'll snitch if I if if you give me like you know a year off or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have them all picked up. Then you have the guy who was like, "Well, can I kill my kids and collect the head rights?" And then yeah. his lawyer being like, "You you just told me you're planning to kill your kids. Are you sure about this?" <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like you you have them all picked up by like the different um, BOI members, um. And you see the case start to develop, and you see like Hale, like you know, his smug grin start to wipe off his face. Um, 
He always well, still seems to like feel like he's in control. He does. He does. Even though, like, even when you see like everything is like come apart, he still ha- he still you know he still has that swagger. Well, and I think I think like again like I think that he's really trying to be like, come on, I'm a well connected Mason. You guys know me. Mm-hmm. I'm getting off of this, right? Um, but then I think there's also that scene where um. I'm trying to remember which one was it where they bring Ernest back to see Molly, but also to like have that stern talking to with all the other people yeah. in the hail machine. Yeah. And you have like, you know, Brendan Fraser and all the other white people like looking at him monolithically. You all of them are friends too. Yeah. You have some, yeah, you had oil barons, right? I think you had like yeah. the head of standard oil was, was there by name. Right. And so, yeah, they're all basically like staring him down, being like, do not fuck this up. And you see, like, you know, Ernest, like, uh, just like, you know, his threadbare spinelessness, like, really, like, starting to bite him in the ass because it's like, you're starting to see, like, oh, the pressure's on and he really doesn't mm-hmm. want to do this. Yeah. But I don't think he's, like, you know, he's not brave enough to be like, nah, fuck this. This is too, this is a bridge too far even for me. He's just in, like, a, I think if he had the choice, he would just vanish, you know? Oh, 100%, yeah. That's the kind of guy he is. But that that scene, like, I think it just, it hammers it all together, right? Where it's like, no, like, William Hale had a game going. It was to make as much money off the oil as possible. He was going to be an oil baron on par with the rest. He was going to set up this, um, this side. And I think it's, it's, it's like, you know, it's very pertinent that it's like, it's all the white people in a room asking Ernest, hey, you with us or not? Right, yeah. Because it is like the the subtext of like, you know, the invention of whiteness as a social construct, you know, like white as a social identity didn't really exist until like you have to control people of other races in a, in a hegemonic context. Right. Mm-hmm. So then you have like blackness invented as a construct, brownness, all this stuff. Right. But then like because otherwise, it, you know, before people would self-identify as like, no, I'm English. No, I'm French. But for all the white people to be like, no, no, no. We're white. We got the money. We got the authority here. Ernest, don't fuck it up. Join our team. And then for him to basically understand the stakes, but have no spine to decide what to do next, mm-hmm. I think it's like the most damning indictment of his character, you know? Yeah. Um, sure. What, el- what else about the court and the unraveling of the, of the uh, conspiracy did you think was of note or interesting? Um, you know, and this is the kind of part where I, I did feel like the movie went like, I don't think we needed all of it, right? Because like they, they sort of show like, um, the unraveling of like how like, exactly how certain murders played out, right? Whereas like, I don't necessarily know if it was as essential to it. I think that like, at that point, you're sort of testing maybe the patience of your audience in terms of like whether they'll be like you know respond to this in like the brutalistic fashion that like they might have had they seen it earlier um but uh you know it, it was I, I think you know I, it was kind of nice seeing things kind of come together there of course you get the sort of confessional at the end from when Ernest does eventually uh do the right thing and then he, he meets with Molly for that last time and um you know, the one thing he's not willing to admit to is is the poisoning of her, right? And that's you know, presumably what leads to her divorce um, of him and whatnot. But that's kind of, you know, that it's that further indictment of his character, right? He's, he's really not, like, 
And even even then, right, like the stuff that he is taking accountability for, right, it's stuff that he had taken like plea bargains for and stuff like that. So it's like he's really unwilling to fully accept like responsibility and accountability for a lot. Mm hmm. And, and I know you mentioned earlier, too, that because because I agree with with your take on that. Um, when the genre shift happens towards this point, right, like. I kind of feel like there was no way but to have that happen if you wanted to include the um, Bureau of Investigation plotline. So, Maybe, like, yeah. when, what, yeah, what, when, when did the shift happen where you were like, okay, I don't know if I'm feeling this? Like, wh at what point did that kick in for you? I, I mean, I, I, honestly, on it would have been Brendan Fraser. It just felt like I'm like, okay, it feels like I'm watching like an Ace Attorney video or something like that instead. <laughs> Uh, and and as it wasn't like that. It was like I, I don't think it made it like bad. It was just like it just it was like one of these things. Where I was like, okay, like this feels like we're kind of like like this movie has taken me for like a big ride, where we've gone through just like a lot of stuff. And I mean, some of that is like you know the FBI thing as well. I mean it, that kind of like mainly when they're like gathered in the field, it felt like when the perspective is more on them, it felt like okay, this is definitely like different and maybe a little disjointed from uh things we were at um so yeah that, that was kind of my uh my take on that i i also kind of wonder like if that was a stylistic choice because like like we mentioned earlier you know like the film basically takes place in like what's effectively the wild west and then yeah. when they come into the courtroom like it's it's all st stuff stuffy you know very stiffly official almost like um mirroring the aesthetic sensibilities of the east coast like i think like the scene in dc where like the color is like more like cold like it's a cold color tone yeah. and all the scenes in oklahoma are more like a warm color tone i wonder if that was intentional yeah i feel like i mean definitely like it, it feels artistic but I, I mean i know it's like kind of like you know it's like dc has that more like it, it seemed more smoggy and whatnot too right um and that that might be um for some artistic purpose maybe more so than like reflecting reality or something like that but I don't, i'm not sure yeah like the, like there was this like cold color tone in like the courtroom and yeah. I, I wonder if that was like intentional like to show that like this is, you know, a space that's trying to project itself as like cold and neutral, or if that's just like I don't know, me ascribing meaning that wasn't there. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, might need to rewatch. Although I don't know if I if I can sit down for another four hour viewing. <laughs> I'll probably I'll probably have to take an inter uh, an interval for that one. Oh boy. Sure. Yeah. So that that takes us to probably the ending, right? So. With the proto true crime podcast, where you know true crime files from J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah. Um. Which point is Scorsese making here about true crime entertainment, or like how we tell crime stories? Yeah, I mean, I, my initial reaction was that I thought this was a weird way to end it, but I think, I think it's a comment. I, I, I mean, I don't know how like because it's like if it, is it a commentary on just the fact that we like view these like through the lens of just like pure entertainment right um but at the same time it's like they went through with doing it anyway so like is it like is it that meta of a commentary or is it just like sort of just accepting that this is the reality of 
you know, true crime podcasts and true crime, I guess, in general, right? That it, you know, one man's death is another man's, uh, you know, Tuesday night afternoon. Um, <laughs> like, you know, I, I, I don't know. Um, but like that was kind of as that like it's you know I, I don't know if it's that that meta level or not. But again, it's sort of weird if you sort of go through with it anyways and are sort of uh, deliberate in it. Yeah, like I th- I think like we were saying earlier, right? Is like you know the the shift to the true crime uh, show is definitely jarring, and I wonder like what the rationale was for it. Was Scorsese, you know, trying to make a a dig at true crime entertainment, or was it like, I don't know how we're gonna end this, so let's just get creative with it? Who's to say? But as I said, it 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 felt like it was maybe a dig, but if you just did it yourself, like then you're complicit with said like phenomenon. (laughs) I think he's like trying to admit he's complicit. Maybe, maybe, yeah, yeah. Like I like I, I definitely think that you know like in how he's talked about the film and how people are reacting to the film, you know, Scorsese is making it very clear that like, no white people are complicit in this. And then his role in the ending might just be like him winking and saying, no, I know I'm complicit. I'm admitting it. But I also, I also think that, um, like we were mentioning earlier with like, you know, film and, uh, photography and this idea of representing, other people's stories and relaying events, right? Mm-hmm. If you look at like the way that scene was structured, like I think it really opens with like a red curtain opening, and then yeah. you have like you know a whole like band doing like the music and sound effects. There's like a foley artist doing the sound effects yeah. live. You have like voice acting and stuff, and it's this you know it's this performance, artfully done but still a performance, and. It's 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 spectacular and strange all the same because all of the people retelling this story had nothing to do with what just what we just saw. Yeah. Which I think is like a meta commentary on like this phenomenon of observation we were talking about earlier, right? Um so I I I kind of just wonder like was the intention there to be like, you know, we need to look at the past, but also when we retell the past, there is like this surreptitious tainting or like there's there's just some aspect of retelling that like has a harmful quality that we have to reckon with or that, you know, when it comes to who tells your story and for what intentions they do it, you know, those intentions matter. I don't, I don't necessarily know if that was the intention from the jump, you know, like I would need Scorsese himself to confirm that. But I think ending it with that uh, stylistic choice of a, of a true crime podcast, it is kind of him admitting like, yeah, at some level, you know, when we talk about crime, when we talk about horrible things, there is a chance and there is a, a real possibility that it becomes entertainment in the process. And what does that say about the film? What does that say about what we're doing right here with our discussion of it? You know? Yeah, I think it's just one of those existential questions, right? I mean, it's kind of evergreen, right? I mean, even like, I mean, I think, that was the last episode that we did together where it was like, you know, we talked about like, you know, everyone has to have a take. Right. Um, and it, it is kind of like that, you know, component of it, right? It's that sort of taken up to 
uh, 11 in a lot of ways, right? As it's sort of like, you know, spectator entertainment out of, you know, <laughs> uh, murder and stuff like that, right? You know, as I said, you know, one man's one man's death is another man's uh, Netflix and chill uh, these days. And that's, um, you know, grim, but, you know, it's one of those, like, sort of facts of life that, you know, do we, like... Do we change? Do we not? Like, is there still value to that entertainment, right? Like, right. beyond just, like, the, inter- the the raw entertainment value, like, does it inform you something that might be valuable and maybe preserving your own life, or does it teach you something valuable, like, about the history of different peoples and stuff like that, that's, like, that's this movie, I think, endeavors to do? Yeah, and I think, like, again, uh, as, as you mentioned, like, it, it almost makes me wonder if that was the intent for having it be a full four hour viewing of like, you're going to miss this. If you take breaks, maybe that's the case. I also think it is worth mentioning too, that like immediately after this, like it kind of takes us back to reality with like a scene that has nothing to do with the, with the events of the movie. It was like a real, like um, traditional dance. They cover with like a overhead drone shot, you know? And it's like, you know, it has that symbolic value of like saying, no, the Osage are still here. You know, they still have preserved their culture and their ways. Mm-hmm. And, and also that, like, it might be, like, the immediate follow-up to that question of, like, take yourself back to reality then after you've learned these things, you know? Like, yeah, I think, I think, I think that's, a, that's a beautiful way to summarize it. Possibly. <laughs> Which, I guess, yeah, now we can, get, we can get into our extended discussion, right? So... I think we we did talk about this earlier. Scorsese as a director of crime yeah. cinema, and I think the, that directly ties in. I mean, he he literally shows up at the end of his movie, right? I mean, he's there to uh, give the wrap up for you know the epilogue uh, with the true crime podcast. Yeah, I'm just trying to see like if if there's anything else we can jump to in these points in the outline. Let's see. Yeah, are the po- are the posses and political bosses of the Wild West no different from the mob and mafiosos of Scorsese's usual focus? I mean, I think stylistically, no, right? Well, I mean, like, yeah. I, I guess, like, there's the superficial sense they're a little different, but they're, I mean, they're very, very similar, right? I mean, it maybe it helps that you, you know, he casts De Niro in like every fucking movie he can. <laughs> um, so, like, yeah, like, you know, I'm sure, like, he he could, you know what range he portrays like all these like, same same types of people right that are um you know kind of in that territory but uh yeah i mean i think that's kind of you know they're they're not really that different right there's you know if you're someone who like truly believes that the law is the end all be all then i guess there's a difference but like i mean at the end of the day it's you know there's a our laws don't always keep up with our ethics and morality yeah I definitely think that are sometimes you know, you know designed to explicitly you know enable yeah they call it immoral behavior citizens united I'm looking at you <laughs> <laughs> i I will say like to that point right like I think Scorsese you know pathologically has to get everybody Italian in in the movie no matter what so of course <laughs> you know having Robert de Niro and uh Leonardo DiCaprio just play like absolute country yahoos is it, it was entertaining. Sure. Yeah. I also think like the guy who was saying like, Oh, can I kill my kids for the money? That guy <laughs> was also Italian too. And I was just like, this guy was like a mob hitman in the Irishman. And now you have oh. him and just another like Yahoo. It's like what range, what range? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, 
we also touched on this earlier, the theme of being complicit. How far does this go? I I think I think I covered that as well as I could. What do you think? Yeah, I think that we we really, you know, covered the uh, the breadth of that, right? I mean, I think the idea that um you know, Ernest is sort of a proxy for sort of the everyman who's complicit, yet he's also like more than complicit in a lot of ways, right? He's uh, you know, a more active participant than like the more passive um complicity that we I, I think is really kind of the driving force of a lot of societal issues right because there's, there's more people who are just passive about it yeah and i i kind of wonder like maybe it just has a moral question right like mm-hmm. his complicity is unique in that if he resisted at any point his resistance would have any would have a lot more impact than anyone else's and i think yeah. that's kind of says something about our complicity in a lot of things, you know, like if, if we consider our complicitness to be mundane in some aspects, you know, would that lead us to be in a position to be morally numb when our resistance wouldn't matter? I don't know, but I think it's mm-hmm. worth considering. Um, I think we did touch on this point well enough. American society is a regime of property rights. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that's, yeah, I think that's something we definitely got to. Really. Yeah, sort we, of a we, theme of this show in general. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think we did that well enough. Um, indigenous input, criticism, and perspectives on the film. I haven't engaged with this that much. Uh, I mean, I, 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 you know, I have Scorsese's word <laughs> that he consulted <laughs> with uh, indigenous folks. Um, that's about, and I, I think that's nice, assuming that he, you know, is honest about that, right? I think that's that's cool. I, I think, um, I, I think the way the indigenous actors played their characters, I thought they all did a really good job too. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'd say that for sure. Like, um, a lot of the people who were involved in consulting and advising for the film, like mentioned that like their input helped the film for the better in the and like lily lily gladstone confirmed that herself mm. which you know is, is great and she she was amazing in this film too right yeah um and similarly like the interview i was mentioning earlier where um one of the osage um consultants for the film like he shared like his very you know um very frank thoughts on the film after the first viewing and he mentioned like yeah my feelings are complicated i think that you know Scorsese did a good job and all but he wished that there was a little more emphasis put on Lily Gladstone's character, that there was a yeah, bit I think more. That was, I thought, a weakness of it. I mean, I get like for a decent chunk of the film, she's virtually incapacitated um, the entire time. But I, I did kind of feel like her perspective was secondary or maybe even tertiary uh, in the movie. And I felt that she was. Um, Maybe deserved a little bit better than that. Yeah, which is, I think, like, in his estimation, right? Like, he was saying, like, you know, the film has obvious limits because Mm -hmm. it's a Scorsese film, because a white guy and a white lead are, you know, at the heart of this film, right? So that limits the Osage perspective by by design, right? Yeah. But And and that's why, in his estimation, he said that... um, it's a film about that whose thematic question is how complicit are you willing to be with racism? Mm -hmm. And I think if that's the, the read of the film, right. Then that is the, the natural conclusion of having, you know, a white guy at the, at the helm of the film, right. 
that's I think a, an angle that he can explore. But I think like yeah, if if the film was told from an Osage perspective, it would be completely different. And I think like before David Grant wrote the uh, the book, there was a novel that that told a fictionalized version of these events called Mean Spirit. And I think the mm-hmm. author was indigenous, so there is that lens to it. But I think I think for sure that again, the meta commentary of the film comes back once again, right? Where it's like, who tells your story, who represents you, and how does that color the truth? You know, it, it comes back yeah. once again. I, o- I will also say too that um, there was um, an actress who had worked with um. With Lily Gladstone, I forget what her name is. Um, but she had posted a thread about her, you know, experience viewing the film. Um, and she was she was on this on this um FX series, um, Res- Reservation Dogs. If you've heard of it, I think I've heard of it. I haven't watched it. It's really good. I watched I watched all three. I think there were three seasons. It's really okay. good. It's really good. Okay. It, but it's you know it's a different approach to indigenous um, film and art where it's like instead of it being about the past and about past atrocities, it kind of chronicles um, you know for um, kids living in like Muscogee country and how um, they are adapting to you know the death of one of their friends. And she plays like a lead role in that. Let me look this up. I I I need to be better about this. What's her name? Yeah, Devery Jacobs. She wrote a thread about um like her take on the film, right? Okay. And Lily, and Lily Gladstone was also on this series, and she was basically saying how like you know she found it hard to watch because it's you know about very disturbing things that happen yeah. to the Osage. So I, I felt like, you know, that's a fair criticism. And I think like, you know, that's just something that you can't downplay in, you yeah, know, and that's, times of the past. That's something that's always hard with stuff like this, right? Where it feels like it's, you know, where it's, you know, the discomfort is like, in some ways it's, I, I, I mean, again, I, I'm not, you know, a part of that culture so like it's it's coming from this outside perspective but like it's it's important in in like you know documenting you know what happened and i think like knowing like horrible things that happen is like important and i mean i know there's like this large debate in like the education community now right with like you know a lot of bans and stuff like that um and efforts to ban things um but um i i do appreciate that that, that can be traumatic for people as well who are maybe more close to home with those concepts yeah and i think like that's you know this was probably like a similar critique of like you know historical like dramas and stuff back like in earlier years too like i would say like even in like bush era stuff right where it's like Mm -hmm. black roles always tend to go towards like you know people who are enslaved and like, you yeah. know, their depiction in film is like, you know, the, the atrocities of slavery. Yeah. And I think that was where like the big push for representation in media came from, right. Where it's like, can we have stories about us that have more to do with, with than just, you know, what happened to us in the past, but also I think like you can't shy away from honest reckoning with the past. Mm-hmm. 
So I don't I don't know. At least at least in my estimation, I think this film did a good job. But I think like you know, that's an ongoing dialogue in yeah, one hundred percent film storytelling history that like it should always be paid attention to to some extent. Hmm. Um. Yeah. Performances and composition. I I think I think everyone did a great job in the film. I don't yeah. I don't think there was a single bad performance. Yeah. I think you know, and you're you definitely had your criticisms of the composition. If you if you had to cut any arc, which one would you? I don't know. I'm I'm trying to like it's like as far as like the arcs. I mean, there's I, I think there's just like a few scenes that like kind of just don't go anywhere. Like there's one that like kind of stood out to me that like felt important when it happened, but didn't really materialize into anything. When um uh when uh. King had uh, Ernest sign like that document to like keep the rights within the family. Like I assumed it was like some way to like surrender stuff to him, right? I thought it was like some advantage to him, but it's like nothing ever came of it. Uh, and like a that, that scene was relatively lengthy too. And I think there's like a few scenes like that here and there where it's like they weren't as they weren't essential to their arcs or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, I. There were a couple scenes where I'm just like, the scene's going on. I wonder like what the use of this is. And I mm-hmm. think part of it is like, you know, you want to paint like, you know, a historical like picture of like, you know, what yeah. was going on this time. And of course, like, you know, it's it's fun looking at all the old timey cars that go awoo when you hit the horn. <laughs> but it got it got a bit excessive at a point. I'm just like, you know, you could you could at least shave off like 10 seconds here, five seconds here. Sure, yeah. But at the same time, you know, um, I'm definitely of the mind that if I enjoyed a film and a director said, no, I think this was absolutely necessary. You know, I'm, I'm definitely, right. yes, sir. Hurrah. But yeah, I think there was definitely like, you know, I would, I would love to hear what the justification is for the length, but mm-hmm. again, four hours that, that is, that is an interesting consideration. Yeah. It's, it's a commitment. <laughs> um, I think this is this is one thing that you mentioned we should add to the outline, and I've actually been looking forward to this. Yeah. So uh, um, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, so this is um, a comparative politics idea, but it's it's a lot of people have been looking at applying it uh, more domestically as well. And this is called uh, it's called the um, it's from a book for, by uh, Michael Ross called "The Oil Curse: How Petroleum Wealth Shapes the Development of Nations." core thesis of this book is that uh, countries that are like rich in petroleum specifically but oil like you know like oil and stuff like that um, they have less democracy less economic stability and uh, more frequent civil unrest civil wars things of that nature um, and this has been applied to like you know domestic contexts as well like such as states um, where we've seen um, you know like basically the argument is that like these countries they have this wealth and they kind of, in, in part, they use it to sort of cow their citizenry a little bit um, with things like subsidies or, you know, the head rights that we kind of see in this movie. Um, and it was like one of these concepts that like, like being familiar with this, because I've reviewed like dozens of these capstone papers before, whether it's at like an undergraduate conference um, at Oakland or um, some of my friends that have asked me to like, you know, read their papers and whatnot and help them with it before as well. But this is... 
uh, it was just something that that really stood out to me. Like watching this, I was like, you know, like the the whole like the role that oil plays. And there's even a point in the movie where they literally do call it a curse, uh, right? Like, so it's you know the it's uh, you know in some ways maybe a little on the nose uh, to make it this comparison. Uh, but I think you know it's it's worth kind of like you know as we've discussed already a lot of like the themes of um, both in this movie and like some of the stuff that you kind of have to like research outside of that context right but you kind of get the sense that like you know there is a lot of civil unrest in the sense that like they're being exploited um, you know uh, by white men and also in some cases you know like they're you know even their their family is not exactly like sacred grounds right in terms of just uh, being used to exploit them for their money. Yeah, I think it's de- it, this this thesis is definitely onto something both in the context of the film and even when it comes to um how we understand petrostates and how they function, yeah. right? Um, you know, definitely like the Gulf monarchies this applies mm-hmm. to. And that's like explicitly what the book was like referring to, but like you can see it where like a lot of like, you know, even like in the United States, right? Like states like Texas and whatnot um are kind of subject to like these similar parameters as well. Yeah, and it's like, th- I mean, this kind of goes back to I- I'm trying to remember what episode we talked about. What was it? The um, the Yankee versus cowboy uh, dynamic. Yeah, where it's like you know you have the um, like the oil and mining you know capital from like the south and mm-hmm. southwest, uh, influencing a certain kind of like evangelically uh, influenced conservatism. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, like the, the Yankees in this factional um, setup, you know, they're, they're involved in finance capital, they yeah. deal with international trade, so they tend to have a more moderate position when it comes to dealing with the communists, and the, you know, the cowboys are more anti-communist in their posture, right? Mm-hmm. So, I think, I think there's, they're definitely onto something there, right? And it's like, when you look at the context of this nationally, right? When I guess it is worth considering the Osage murders and, um, you know, the Tulsa massacre as concurrent events rather than as separate ones, right? Mm-hmm. And especially, you know, you could probably add the Osage murders to study when it comes to examining the Reds, uh, the Red Summer. And, you know, to that end, too, like the Red Summer is even considered as, you know, a kind of wave or a response to the you know first wave of anti-communism in the u.s right um if you take that for what it is you know like when we talk about the the oil curse right i mean if you're talking about the gulf monarchies you know like they are staunchly right-wing states they have you know regressive social policies but also you know they facilitate um certain anti-communist or certain you know um anti-left objectives you know in the middle east at you know america's discretion um they'll help america out on those fronts too um venezuela comes to mind but i think it's a bit of an outlier for this thesis do you know if it comes up in the book at all uh i do not know uh explicitly if, if venezuela comes up but yeah that might be um but even, 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 yeah even then right like i mean like some of these other concepts still kind of hold true for it right like I to mean, some extent for it, possibly yeah. Yeah, yeah um but yeah for Maybe sure like, not explicitly because of the oil but you know <laughs> i mean 
I mean, like, yeah, like Russia would even apply to a certain yeah. extent. I'm trying to think, like, what other countries you could apply this to, right? Like, uh, I mean, definitely the Gulf monarchies. Um, yeah, yeah, those are the, uh, the, I think the main focus. But yeah, Russia 100% as well is like a one to one fit. Yeah. Um, and then, like, for sure, like in the US, I mean, it's 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 definitely applicable to the U.S. I mean, uh, you know, the U.S. still produces oil to a yeah, even extent. the U.S. as a whole. Yeah, yeah, because again, it's like there are less. There has been an incursion of civil rights. There has yeah. been an incursion on dem- democracy in the United States. Economic stability is. <laughs> I mean, from the jump. I mean, does isn't this movie like you know just a a couple years shy of the of the great uh the Great Depression? Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah, almost right there. I mean, obviously, the, the, I, I would assume it hadn't happened yet, otherwise there would probably be a little bit more reference to it. But yeah, I mean, they're they're pretty darn close. Yeah, so it's like, even then, like, economic stability is not a, is not a guarantee here in the United States, mm-hmm. right? And then civil unrest. I mean, my God, this film was an example. Like, you know, you had yeah. the Osage murders, the, the Tulsa race massacre. Was a mm-hmm. was definitely civil unrest. Put that in the larger context of the Red Summer, just for this, the period of the film. Like I think this is a, a very cogent lens and and, and um, political framework for understanding um, the events of the film, and then more broadly, you know, how we read and digest the events of uh, the Osage murders here in the present. I think I think it definitely applies. Yeah. For sure though, I think in the in the book though, I wonder like are they talking about it in the sole context of nation states or could you extrapolate that to you know, a criminal boss or a um in this case, you know, a a, a democratic party machine boss? I mean, I think you know the, the the book is mostly talking about nation states and whatnot, but a lot of scholars have extrapolated it to apply to smaller contexts, right? And I think that yeah, you could count, you could bring it into that case, right? Um, where like it's you know, and, and I think it's it's not so much that it's like you know you have these you know the one party boss, right? It's like you have like again, there's like sort of this movement of murders uh, that are occurring in this context. Um, you know, so it's it's not just the the the, the ones uh, tied to uh, like you know Molly's family in particular. There's there's other ones occurring, um, and you know I think that you know it's it's it, the idea I think really is just kind of that like the oil is sort of um, inviting the pre like it's 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 sort of inviting greed uh, that's sort of take root and take a hold there um, in various shapes and forms. Um, whether it be through like a mob boss or you know other folks who are trying to uh, directly uh, capitalize on it, I, I think you know uh, Michael Ross may not have been trying to make an artistic gesture here, but calling it a curse is pretty accurate, you know. Because if you think about yeah. like oil as a concept, right? Like it to- it's a totalizing thing, you know. Like we became an oil dependent mm-hmm. economy. You get car. And, you know our whole foreign policy being structured off of that yeah. and even in the film you know like it's depicted as like 
this like ethereal like black substance you know that mm-hmm. looks scary and then isn't there that one scene where like the oil workers are like covered in it and they look kind of like like monstrous looking at um they I think yeah they yeah that, that was murder. like a really weird and kind of random scene but yeah because yeah, they witness a murder yeah yeah, yeah. And, like, they and like nothing look- happens from it <laughs> yeah yeah I, I, I wasn't even sure i'm like are these like actually oil workers or are they like like the spirits of the dead or like i didn't know what the artistic purpose of them was um but yeah i I do remember that yeah i mean for sure like it works artistically and it also works just again like in a in a um political economic Mm -hmm. understanding it makes perfect sense yeah i would it would definitely be uh you know a missed opportunity to mention this and this i think was like the one bit of my extended reading that really shocked me i i don't know if they mentioned this in the in the ending of the film or not but um william hale entered um fort leavenworth federal prison on yeah. 1929 in 1929 and over the protest of the osage was paroled uh in 1947 Ernest Burkhart was released in 1959 and in 1966 was given a full pardon by the, by the governor of Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, I, I think most of that was mentioned in the little epilogue thing. I don't remember if the pardon was explicitly mentioned and I tried to look into it because I was like really curious. I'm like, okay, like same, same. Yeah. What was like, what was the, like, I'm like, what is this a governor who had like, was he like a like, like firm like anti-native sentiment or anything like that? And I, I couldn't find anything um, about that. Yeah, the the closest I could find out about Henry Bellman, who was the governor who gave the pardon, mm-hmm. is like I think he started off as this like you know very harsh um, arch conservative segregationist type, and then as soon as he starts making it to the national scale, I think he becomes senator from Oklahoma at some point. Yeah, and immediately pivots to the center like starts becoming a moderating influence Mm. so i'm not i'm not sure what to make of that i probably you probably have to like look up like local papers to try to make heads and tails of that yeah i think that's that's right it's not someone who has like a lot out there about him at least on like you know the more obvious channels um which is a bit of a shame because i said i was i was interested in that because i was like that's I just don't see the grounds to like pardon someone involved with this. And that was pardoning too, because he was, he went back to prison actually, uh, because he had like robbed, uh, I think his sister-in-law's home. God, Um, this guy was a crook till the end. Yeah. Um, there's also, I think this is in the book. Um, I had read this detail. Apparently like when he died, he wanted like his ashes spread over like the Osage plains. And, uh, instead his son, like just tossed it over a bridge. Looks like justice was served after all. Right. <laughs> In a very menial, kind of petty way, but, you know. <laughs> sometimes you gotta do what you gotta do. You gotta settle. Carry out your last rites, what are you gonna do me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. All right. Um, we have been at this for, like, about two hours now. Is there any other... Um, angle or anything we might have missed 
You know, I mean, obviously, you know, we're, we're an hour short of the movie, uh, at least, <laughs> but uh, I, I can't, nothing's really coming to my mind that we, we've missed. Yeah, I think, um, you know, since this is movie magic, we got to give it our final rating. So I think, I think we're doing out of five or we do we do out of ten? I can't remember. You know, uh, we change the metric every time. I was going to ask you uh, <laughs> what, what, what you do for this. I th- I mean if it's out of five and then it's out of ten for some divide by two I guess but um yeah out of five what would you give this one um I think I'd give it a four um pretty good but I think there's like you know the length and a few other things kind of hold it back from like that you know that true greatness yeah I think I'll I give it a four and a half you know okay. I I will admit my bias as a Scorsese true believer <laughs> but you know I think um. It was very prescient and necessary for the current moment we're in. Sure. And it was... <laughs> it brought a lot to the surface that I was thinking about that I wasn't able to put words to until I saw the film. And I think good cinema has that power to help you make sense of a story, but also bring, you know, the refreshing perspective of, of you know well put together art back into your life i don't necessarily know if everyone's going to see it that way but i definitely think this is probably another example of cinema being back in a big way this year and i think you know again with oppenheimer and with this film Mm -hmm. um it's been a good year for yeah even barbie too right like it's been it's (laughs) been a good year for movies right um and i'm again if this is a sign of anything to come, I'm fighting allergies here. Um, I'm really excited for Napoleon now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Apple TV productions, whatever they're doing, they're doing something good. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. Um, so with all that being said, uh, thanks for tuning in, dear listeners. Josh, do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, not today. I think we're... Uh... Keep it uh, as short and sweet as we can. Yeah, as always, I've got all the stuff in the description below. You know where to find it. Um, If you don't know how to see the description, go to your podcast app. You'll see a tab that says See More. It'll pop up. It's all on Linktree. Till next time, dear listeners, take care.